Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing a song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along A few weeks ago, we pulled together a fundraiser for Northern Spirit Radio called Broadcasting from the Heartland. The same weekend, my wife and I had some overnight visitors, including today's guest, Kat Griffith, and got engrossed in a discussion late into the night. As we talked about contentious us-against-them othering between liberal and conservative folks, Kat spoke of an article she had shared in a national Quaker publication called Friends Journal about 10 years earlier, an article called Conversations from the Heartland. Mind you, this was the night before we held the Broadcasting from the Heartland event. Clearly, there were some aligned stars going on that weekend. And so we resolved to talk about this in some depth, and we will do that today. Kat Griffith has had some powerful experiences that brought her to the perspectives and insights she'll be sharing today. Some of it through her travels in Central America, some through her teaching in diverse subjects at Lumen Charter High School in a politically conservative town. Ripon, Wisconsin, birthplace, by the way, of the Republican Party, and from her work doing door-to-door political canvassing. Kat is a deeply spiritual and compelling witness for better ways we can foster community and democracy in our country, and she joins us by phone today. Kat, I'm really excited to continue our discussion with you today for Spirit in Action. It's great to be here. First of all, it was great having you here, seeing you in person. It had actually been a number of years. Had you been on an isolation tour? I think you'd been out to the West Coast, right? Well, yeah. I, I Family crisis. I wound up spending six months of last year in Portland, staying with my niece since my sister died. So, yeah, I was gone for quite a while. Did that hiatus in your life, the being out there on the West Coast instead of in Ripon, Wisconsin, did that change things for you? Did it change your direction in life now that you're back? You know, it did. It made a big difference in ways that I could not have predicted. One thing that happened was it just took me away from some deep grooves that I'd gotten into and in work and my family life, just catapulted me right out of those. And I came back with new eyes to see things. I think I came back with my heart kind of molded, reformed in some ways that I'm really grateful for. I think, although it was a very difficult time being in Portland and my sister's death and all that, I also had a deep experience of grace and joy. And grace and joy at the opportunity to be obedient to what I felt the Spirit was asking of me. Grace and joy in the simplicity of life with that obedience. I kind of exited a lot of stuff that was complicated and snarly, and I'm glad to have had that clarifying perspective. And I was also extremely lucky to live in a wonderful co-housing community, which is where my sister had been living. So all of a sudden, I just got this full, whole life handed to me, kind of on a platter. Beautiful people. So I had a beautiful time there at Cascadia Commons, and I will be really forever grateful for that experience. 
And when I came back, it was a hard adjustment in some ways, but I'm finding that I'm loving my work even more than I did when I left. I was a little burned out before I left, and now I feel a real renewed sense of opportunity and joy in it. And I also feel great joy and gratitude for my marriage and my children, beautiful, beautiful children I have (laughs) in college and beyond. So, yeah, it was actually a really good sabbatical away. How did you get the time away for six months to go from your teaching at Lumen Charter High School? I took it. You know, my sister died, and I I had been out there because she'd been having a really hard time. She was in a real crisis, and I had actually gone out twice in three weeks to be with her because she was so shaky. And the second time I went was because she was being hospitalized, and I went to be with my niece for that week. And then the day after she got out, she committed suicide. At that point, I knew immediately. I knew when I was still on the phone with the police department that I was going to stay there. I sent an email to my school district saying, I won't be back until next fall. Do what you need to do. I was prepared to lose my job over it if it came to that, but it didn't. Things were messy, but I just said, that's what I'm doing. I had no question that that was what I needed to do. I had no regrets, never looked back. I just knew. That kind of approach to things, while highly admirable from most people's point of view, is not the kind of thing that a lot of people feel free to do. I sense in you, Kat, a strength, and that's one of the reasons I have you on, is to observe things with a strong spiritual center that is willing to be moved by strong spiritual leadings. I don't know. I I know that sounds kind of fluffy in terms of how I'm saying that, but I sense that that's how you try to conduct your life very consciously, which is one of the reasons we can have this conversation. I think it's one of the reasons you could have the experience that you report about in your article in Friends Journal. Now, this was, again, from 10 years ago. Conversations from the Heartland, the education of one confusing chick in the front lines of the cultural wars. 2006, this came out in Friends Journal, and you report on how you walked into the lion's den from one point of view or opened yourself up to transformation. Maybe that's another way of saying it. All things are valid from certain points of view. Is this something you grew up being willing to do? What was your religious background? I mean, I've known you as a Quaker for a couple decades, but what religious background do you come from? Well, I came honestly from a sort of somewhat unpromising one in a conventional sense. I grew up in a small, struggling Episcopal church. The church was honestly no great shakes. My mother was a powerfully spiritual person and open to guidance, I would say. But she also struggled with mental illness. And I think from her, I don't know, maybe I inherited a bit of temperament. I think I've always been kind of a cliff jumper. I think I've always been somebody who's willing to take risks. I, it's just part of it is that I'm not very good at anticipating what could go wrong. <laughs> I'm an incurable optimist. <laughs> and sometimes I'm just astonished by the, the bad things that happen. But the truth is I'm also adaptable. And so my life experience is that I take enormous and somewhat blind risks And things don't go as well as I often thought they might, but they don't go cataclysmically either. It's not terrible. And I usually end up being glad that I did what I did. So I guess I've never really grown out of it. I I just sort of stumble along. (laughs) So, yeah, my experience is that taking risks is not usually fatal, and it's almost always interesting. And I feel as though I've been handed a lot of opportunities to do things that brought me such gifts. I guess my experience is it's worth it. 
part of growth in spirit, from my point of view, is hanging with people who help provide a vocabulary for what you do. So, I mean, certainly there would be some vocabulary you'd be exposed to as part of your Episcopal childhood, words that you learned, ideas that you learned from your mother. Were there other intermediary steps before you arrived in the Quaker world? Well, let me tell you first the most important words that I got from the Episcopal Church, because they're still with me. I still remember one part of the liturgy, which I think is just awesome, and I mean that in the old-fashioned way, in its perfection. Cleanse the thoughts of my heart with the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. You better say it again so people can remember it. Cleanse? Cleanse the thoughts of my heart with the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. I just think that's the most important thing that I have to do when I get out of bed in the morning. I have a spiritual practice daily. It's the first thing I do when I get up. And that's the piece of what I need to do to set myself on the right track again every day. That was a gift to have those words always kind of floating around in my consciousness because of years and years of services in a not particularly inspired Episcopal church. (laughs) I guess after that, I got involved in peace work in college, and that was what brought me into the Society of Friends because I found I was surrounded by experienced veterans of many political campaigns and peace campaigns. There were lots of activists. And I was really drawn to a few of them, and it turned out that the ones I was drawn to were by and large Quakers. I was very fortunate to meet some really beautiful people at the 57th Street meeting in Chicago. And I started attending that meeting. I didn't join it, but I attended it off and on for the rest of my time in college. It was at the University of Chicago. Then, several years later, I was traveling in Central America. All sorts of things led to that. I had a terrible family implosion. My mother committed suicide. My father kicked me out. I was really struggling. I was lost. I was, you know, kind of stumbling around in Latin America trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I quite by accident wound up in Monteverde, Costa Rica. I hitchhiked there with some missionaries. and wound up meeting some wonderful, beautiful people there. And one thing led to another. I had a surprising series of little jobs. The first one was bottle feeding a baby goat, and the next one was house sitting, and the next one was serving as a, as a substitute teacher in the friend's school, and the next one was working for a biologist. And pretty soon I realized I didn't want to leave, and I ended up spending three and a half years there. So you spent three and a half years there and joining the Friends Meeting down there. And for our listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, Monte Verde down in Costa Rica, there's a group, I think they were from Alabama. Yeah, they were. They were from Fairhope, Alabama, and some other places as well. Some of them were from Ohio and Iowa. But they were Quakers who left the United States after the close of World War II. Some of them had been conscientious objectors during World War II. Some of them had actually done jail time or had to do some sort of community service that was somewhat punitive. And they did not want to be part of a country that had this whole military-industrial complex thing going on. And Costa Rica had just abolished its army following their successful, or I should say at least their concluded, civil war. And they thought, well, that's the place for us. So they actually contacted the president of Costa Rica. They got permission to go down, and they created a community up in the mountains, which ultimately became quite successful in several different ways. And now it's, I think, probably is the most visited place in Central America, right up there. 
So I got there actually before it was a really big thing. I got there in the mid-80s when there were still, you know, just a couple thousand tourists a year. And yeah, spent three and a half years there, just had a beautiful time. It was an amazing piece of my life. So I think I get the idea of how you made the transition from your upbringing. Did you go full-time in terms of being a peace worker? No, I was a student. I did a lot more politicking than studying, I will confess. <laughs> uh, I still remember the time my mother came to visit, and it just happened to be the week before a huge teach-in on registration in the draft. I kind of cut my chops on when Jimmy Carter reinstated draft registration, and I wrongly thought that that meant that he was going to bring the draft back. That never happened, but a lot of us got pretty stirred up about it, and that was kind of my initiation into politics. And so anyway, we were organizing this big teach-in against draft registration and draft in general and various sundry related things, and my mother came to visit, and that particular week, I actually didn't attend a single class. <laughs> um, I was, and she said, well, I'm, I, I'm really pleased that you're doing all this peace work, dear, but I'm not sure what we're paying for. But she was a good sport about it, and yeah, I did fine. I was most of the time a good student. Well, the reason that I got you on the phone, or I think maybe the centerpiece of what I want to talk to you about, Kat, and again, folks, we're speaking with Kat Griffith, who, amongst other things, teaches at Lumen Charter High School in Repin, Wisconsin. She's been active with a project that connects Quakers in Wisconsin, Minnesota, with those in El Salvador. We'll talk more about that later. She recently hosted at her home a woman named Paula Palmer, who I interviewed just a month or so ago. So if you go to NordenSpiritRadio.org, you can listen to my interview with Paula Palmer. But the main reason that I wanted to get you on was because of something that's near and dear to my heart and to your heart. This was reflected in your article in October 2006 in Friends Journal. If you haven't read Friends Journal, folks, you're missing out on something which I think can stir the spiritual and the politically active and the thoughtful kind of people. I, I regularly see letters in there from people who are not Quakers, but who are fellow travelers interested in some such way. Conversations from the Heartland is a deep introspection in your experience, certainly, Kat, but but also, I think it encourages all of us to look at how we set up these oppositional forces in our society, which are so immense right now. Right now, it feels like anyone who likes Donald Trump and anyone who likes Hillary Clinton would be willing to kill each other. That's how our society feels to me at this point. Mm-hmm. And so revisiting something from 10 years ago, which is obviously before this point, but you're talking about the underpinnings of what led to this. So why don't you say, in your words, Kat, what Conversations from the Heartland is about? Well, we moved to Ripon shortly after we decided to homeschool our children. We had, at that point, a toddler and a preschooler, and we didn't know where we were going to be going to when we made that decision. When we got to Ripon, I immediately started researching, you know, who are the local homeschoolers because I'm an extreme extrovert and I wanted to find everybody who might become my friends in this endeavor. It turned out that most of them were conservative Christians. Most of them were uh, Republican. Most of them went to, well, yeah, pretty conservative churches. And I also liked them right away enough that I knew I wanted to still make common cause with them. I still wanted to have time with them and, you know, to the extent that we could get along, raise my children with them. But 
it was also clear that there was a lot that divided us. And I remember at one point, I think it was, well, it was after 9-11 when I saw this big divide open up in how we responded to that. You know, there were the people whose porches sprouted flags and there were the people who felt like the Patriot Act is terrible and it's destroying the things it's saying it's protecting. And, and I felt this gulf widening. We already had a gulf and I, and I saw it getting bigger. And then I realized that, you know, by that time, I also really deeply loved these women. I mean, these were really beautiful people who were, in most cases, wonderful parents, deeply committed, loving. They were great folks who really humbled me, and also people of deep faith. I mean, I realized by that time that they were really very genuine. Their faith was not convenient or easy for them. It wasn't just a weapon to bash other people with. And if you only read the newspaper about it, that's what you'd think of the religious right. And I thought that that wasn't true. And I thought, you know, we have a really unusual thing here, which is that we have a friendship, a genuine, warm friendship across this divide that most people see as unbridgeable. And so I did one of my cliff jumps. I sent out an email and I said, would you guys be willing to get together and have some conversations about the things that we disagree about? You know, they were disconcerted, but they were willing to give it a try. At our first conversation, I messed up big time. I was the one who got agitated. I was the one who got defensive, and my voice rose, and I went on a rant. And, you know, they were disappointed because that was the thing they'd been afraid I was going to do all along. <laughs> but to their great credit, they came back and tried again, and I kept myself better in hand after that. And, you know, I would say that many of us had at least one episode of getting a little ranty, but most of the time we structured things so we didn't. And we talked about everything. We talked about capital punishment. We talked about the Pledge of Allegiance. We talked about abortion. We talked about LGBTQ issues. We talked about welfare. We talked about war. Gosh, we talked about the nature of God, the nature of human beings. You know, the conversations were incredibly difficult and also enlightening. I got some wanging headaches, <laughs> including some migraines. After some of them, I was completely exhausted. But I also learned things that were truly helpful to me to understand. There were some moments of, oh, is that all that divides us? Well, that's not so bad. And that was wonderful to see. And then, you know, where the subtitle of the article came from was at the end of the very last conversation, I asked one of the most conservative women in the group, she was Baptist, and at one point, the, the thing I most remember her saying was that she thought that investing money in the military was more in keeping with God's wishes for us than investing in welfare, which to me was a bizarre <laughs> idea. Yes. But I asked her at the end, my little small cliff jump, so do you think I'm going to go to heaven or hell? And she burst out laughing, which was not the response I expected. <laughs> and then she said, I don't know. And I'm sure glad I'm not the one who has to decide because you are one confusing chick. And I thought, oh. <laughs> and I thought about it and I thought, you know, that's one more category of people arriving at the pearly gates than there used to be. It used to be the saved and the damned, and now it's the confusing chicks, too. <laughs> I think you've got your epitaph for your gravestone, you know, if you want to have one. <laughs> Actually, my son has suggested an epitaph, which is, she washed baggies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He thinks it's ridiculous that I do this, but anyway. 
Can I ask you about this group? Something that occurred to me right away, and I imagine it's a fundamental part of the conversation you were able to have. It sounds like there were no men present. That's a true thing. There weren't. And did that have a significant effect from your estimation? I think it was probably a good thing that there were no men present. I will say that for some of these women, men were accepted as the dominant head of family, as the main decision maker. And I think if their husbands had been in the room, the conversation would have been very dominated by them. And I'm not saying that they're bad people. I actually really like a couple of those men. But they do have a kind of, well, traditional, shall we say, view of men and women. And some of them really figured that men should get to do the heavy lifting. Not all of them. Like one of them, you know, he absolutely supported his wife in running for mayor. And, you know, she ran. So I'm not saying that they were all like that, but some of them were. In the article, again, from Friends Journal 10 years ago, and this is only one of a few articles that you published around that time, there's also an article, For Where Your Treasure Is, There Will Your Heart Be Also. There was an article on Quaker education, thoughts on our words, our silence, and a very cool milk jug raft. So those are all articles that one could track down and get via the Friends Journal site. But this one, Conversations from the Heartland, strikes me as this particularly important. And the way it came up in our conversation when you were here at my house a few weeks ago was because you've been doing some canvassing. Mention what you've been doing now and how that feeds into or dovetails with this Conversations from the Heartland. Well, I think what the Conversations from the Heartland did for me was bring me to a place of surrender to the reality that there are people whose views are fundamentally different from mine and yet we can still love each other, we can still be in community, we can still have conversations that lead to some at least modest evolution in, on both of our sides. And it made me far better at talking to all kinds of people who are different from me. For example, and this is getting a little off the subject of canvassing, but one of the biggest ways that I evolved in this set of conversations was on the issue of whether being gay was a sin. I will say right now, I'm bi. They don't know that. I never told them for lots of reasons. But it was a difficult issue for me. I needed to wrestle with it and come to the bottom of why they felt the way they did. And I eventually came to feel that I needed to get to the bottom of why I felt like I did. And I also needed to consider the possibility that I was wrong. And it was one of the moments of profoundest grace and surrender in my whole process through those conversations, the day that I got to the point that I was willing to ask God to take me where God wanted me to go, even if it was someplace else. I remember my terror that what if I pray to God to change my heart in this, if I pray to God to bring me where God wants me to go, what if he wants me to be a follower of Jerry Falwell? What if I get told to go and, you know, join this other church? What would that be like? And I was so scared of that that I actually called a cousin of mine, a person of deep integrity, and I said, Russell, will you still love me if I become a born-again Christian? Because <laughs> I was afraid that that might be what would happen to me. And he said, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I remember that day, you know, with fear and trembling, I prayed the prayer, take me where you want me to go. What ultimately happened, not right away, but over some months, was a gradual shift. I feel like the Holy Spirit just kneaded my soul into a new shape. 
And the shape was, it is actually easy for me to talk with people and to engage in conversation with people who think it's a sin without getting rattled. I don't get rattled. I can't explain it because I'm a rattleable person, but, <laughs> but that, that just doesn't do it. And I find that I'm able to be in community with people respectfully and with love. And it's turned out to be a very useful thing. It's been very useful in my relationship with Salvadorans because they typically are pretty anti-gay. It's been useful in many places. In fact, it's one of the things that made it possible for me to come out as bi in one of my classes, which did lead to some serious problems. But I was able to do it partly because I had kind of been through this gauntlet before. So anyway, that was the way that the conversations changed me. And I feel like I needed to do that. I needed to surrender to God's will and to the possibility that God would change my mind, that I would conclude that I had been wrong and that I would need to go somewhere else. And that experience is one that I think it's maybe the first time I've ever achieved that level of humility. I'm embarrassed to say that, that I'm not a particularly humble person, (laughs) but I guess I'm not. And to realize what a gift it was to experience the humility not as a loss of something, but to feel it entirely as a gain, that had never occurred to me. That humility, I don't always access it. Like I said, I'm not a particularly humble person, but that humility is what underlies whatever success I have when I'm talking to people who are very different from me. And, you know, of course, when you go out canvassing, you don't know who you're going to meet. I have shifts where I meet people who are very receptive to my message, and I had a shift a few weeks ago where all but one person that I talked to was a Trump supporter. That was very disconcerting. But I was able to do it, and I'm able to talk to people on a good day in ways that move us forward. I had one night where three people flipped in one canvassing shift, one right after the other. They were all men who had worked in factory jobs. They had all lost their jobs. They had tried to stay in their houses, hoping and hoping that they would get a new job, and they lost everything. They lost their houses. They went through all their savings, and they wound up living in this little bitty apartment building around the corner from where I live in efficiency apartments, three men in a row in their late 50s, all the same demographic. It was heartbreaking. It was a little window into what a lot of people are living, a lot of statistics you read, but it put faces on the statistics for me. And each of those conversations, they went from being lifelong Republicans to deciding they were going to vote Democratic. Now, to me, the triumph isn't that they switched parties. That would be, I mean, that was gratifying, yes. But the triumph for me was that we connected. What really mattered to me was that we were able to have this surprising conversation across our different worlds and connect in a way that they made sense to me and I made sense to them. And when I have a shift like that, I feel like this is what we need to do to knit our society back together. We need to talk to each other way more than we do. My last canvassing shift, I was in Fond du Lac, and the thing that was disappointing about it was it was the kind of turf that I like. It was kind of a maybe lower middle class neighborhood, maybe kind of on the edge of working class. There was a number of pretty run-down houses. The thing that was so frustrating was that nobody had a working doorbell. It had never occurred to me that that would be a significant (laughs) issue, but it was. What I realized was if you don't have a working doorbell, it's probably because you don't expect anybody to come, in addition to the fact you may not have the money to fix it. Other things were run down too, but that was really a problem because I thought, well, they must just not expect anyone to come to the door. They wouldn't consider not having a functioning phone. They know people are going to call them. 
well, I want to ring their doorbell. I want to talk to them, and I can't. It was very frustrating, and it seemed symbolically important to me that here was a whole neighborhood effectively without any doorbells. And that, to me, was a neighborhood where people weren't talking to each other. They weren't visiting each other. And that's when politics stops being face-to-face. I'm really troubled by that. That stuck with me as kind of a metaphor for where we are as a society. And my most satisfying conversations that day were with people who were out on the street. I didn't have to ring a doorbell. They weren't on my list, but I just talked to anybody who was out there. Yeah. And, you know, actually, I don't know if you know this, Kat. Just this past week, I started canvassing in the Eau Claire area. Actually, I went to Richland Center, which is an hour and a half from here, my first day, and then in Eau Claire just yesterday. So I'm going around knocking on doors or ringing bells and finding that ringing bells don't work also, and talking to people, most of whom tend to be progressive in their politics, as we would describe that. But I ran into a couple of persons. I had a pretty interesting discussion with a person who said, essentially, progressives are the devil's spawn. Well, that's an interesting thought. But we could have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And we did. And I think by the time I left, I had to leave because my ride came to pick me up. I think we were getting to a place where we could actually listen to each other and say, well, there's something interesting here that I want to engage with. And you discuss this in your article, Conversations from the Heartland, that... It happens from both sides. We, in parentheses, think they are unapproachable or unworthy and in some way deplorables. Deplorables, there's no communicating with them. But we don't recognize that there's no communicating with us to some degree. And we'll get into that in more depth just shortly, folks. But first, I want to remind you, you're listening to Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, you find us at northernspiritradio.org. That's O-R-G, as in organic, not commercial. And on that site, you'll find about 11 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download, and you'll find connections to our guests. So when you want to track down Kat Griffith, you can find out something about her, and particularly to Friends Journal, where her articles were published. And I'm sure there's more coming, and Kat, maybe that's a a hint I'm putting in your direction at this point. But also on the site, you can post comments, and we do love two-way communication, so when you visit, please do post a comment, let us know what you're thinking. There's also a donate button and that is how this full-time work is supported it's not by corporations not by governments because you the listener believe it deserves your support before you support northern spirit radio though i urge you to support your local community radio station start there because they bring you a slice of news and music that you get just nowhere else it's so important that it arises from the local field of talent and of insights and experience so start by supporting your local community radio station Again, Kat Griffith is with us here today. Amongst other things, she's a teacher at Lumen Charter High School, and there she teaches in a, a wide range of subjects from AP Spanish 5 to social studies and English and reading environmental studies. There's a whole number of things I want to discuss with you, in particular your experience of teaching those things, Kat, in a conservative town. She's also been to El Salvador and elsewhere in Central America, and her connection with El Salvador is particularly noteworthy in terms of how we apply this conversations from the heartland work. It's internal work for each of us to do and to share with the world. So Kat Griffith is with us here today from Ripon, Wisconsin, and we were just talking, Kat, about canvassing. Now, 
my experience of it just recently is it was mostly gratifying. And in part, it is because a lot of the people do appreciate it, particularly elderly people who are used to face-to-face conversations, perhaps don't have email, don't they don't have Facebook to connect with their friends. And so when I knock on their door, they're very happy to discuss things. And it warmed my heart to have that experience. Overall, is that your experience, that it's mostly welcomed? It is. I also, particularly with elderly people, that's true for me too. The day that I talked to mostly Trump supporters, the one exception was a 94-year-old named Orville, a wonderful man. We, We talked for quite a while. He invited me in. But I will say that I've rarely had a shift that left me more discouraged than encouraged. Usually I'm encouraged afterwards. Usually I feel like that was good work. That was what we need to do to heal our society and prevent ourselves from just fracturing and shredding. And I feel like if more people were willing to go out there, it would happen. One of the important ways that I try to live this is in school. A lot of people say, oh, well, it's a public school. You can't do anything controversial. And I say, no, I think in a public school we need to learn how to do controversial. We need to learn how to have conversations across our divides. If we can't do it there, what are our schools preparing us for? What better thing is there to do in a school than prepare our kids to be active members of the body politic, to be active citizens? I can't imagine a more important goal, and I think that was the original goal. So to me, the idea that you would skate around everything potentially controversial is itself scary. It's much more scary than going controversial. So yeah, I I do all kinds of controversial stuff in school. So far, with one exception, which really hurt only me, it hasn't been a problem. Well, let's talk about some of the specifics of your high school experience. I believe that a lot of us have the impression that there are two choices. You stand up and give a sermon from the religious right that damns anybody who doesn't agree with you, or you stand up as a liberal or as a progressive or whatever term people like, and you denounce all those close-minded hypocrites over there, and you plug your ears and don't listen to them. And it's not called a sermon when you do it. It's just called a... A rant. A rant. It's just called a rant, yes. And there are other options. And so you as a teacher in school evidently have found a way to talk about some pretty, well, for some people, points of view, very controversial things like history of labor unions. And you talk a little bit about your experience with that. So here's what I do. I actually kind of figured out how to do this thanks to the AP people. I never thought that I would thank the AP people because I actually really dislike AP tests in most ways. But for Spanish, they gave me perfect marching orders, which were, you have to have your students reading authentic texts. And authentic is defined by AP as written by and for native speakers. And I realized, you know, that is the perfect instruction. It's not coming from me. My students are hearing voices of other people, not my voice. So when I teach about the history of unions in the United States, The students don't hear my voice on that. They hear the voices of the people who formed the unions. We did song after song after song. And we talked about, well, why songs? Why are we doing so many songs? Why are songs such an important form of communication? Why do you sing songs in church? What's that about? What's the purpose of a song? They realized that, you know, a song is a story. It's propaganda. It's the expression of your soul. It's art. It's all sorts of things. 
It's a way to pull people together. But we studied the history of the union movement through the voices of the people who were involved in it. And I didn't have to say, this is my view, you should believe this. It was, this is what they lived. This is their story. And it's the same with most of what I do. You know, I'm teaching right now about the Central American child migrant crisis. These are kids who are leaving mostly El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras because of gang violence. Well, if you know the history of that gang violence, it was an outgrowth of the Salvadoran Civil War. We supported one side in that war. It produced many, many refugees. About 20% of the Salvadoran population came to the United States to flee the violence, and only 4% of them were granted asylum here, so most of them were undocumented. That meant they were living lives of considerable insecurity, mostly in bad neighborhoods. They banded together, young Salvadoran men banded together to protect themselves from existing gangs in L.A. Many of them were imprisoned for various reasons, and the gang that they started became a serious criminal operation, Mara Salvatrucha, or MS-13. And then when their prison terms were up, we deported them back to El Salvador, where basically the cancer metastasized, and the gangs spread, and they became, well, a huge, huge problem. The governments there, the, the police forces there, are just not up to the task of dealing with the level of violence and criminality that they're seeing. And it's coming back to bite us in the butt in the form of this huge wave of child migrants, these unaccompanied kids who are braving a two-and-a-half-thousand-mile trip on their own to come to the United States seeking asylum. That's what we've been studying, and, you know, we're studying it through their voices and their experience. We watch a documentary about child migrants riding La Bestia, the train across Mexico. We, you know, listen to interviews, we read stories of them, and we look at what happened with the gangs, what's going on with that. And by the time the kids are coming up with policy prescriptions, they're doing it from a place of some empathy. And if that isn't getting them all the way there, and, and that in itself won't necessarily, I've got some other things that I'll pull out to try to get them to get empathy better. I, I don't try to control what their outcomes are. I try to focus on the process of getting them to put themselves in someone else's shoes. So, for example, the other day I said, okay, we're going to do a thought experiment. I'm going to call this the veil of ignorance. They didn't really know what that was, but we talked about it. And I said, so here's the deal. You don't know who you're going to be born as. You don't know whether you're going to be Salvadoran or Honduran or American or Mexican. You don't know if you're going to be a Border Patrol agent or a gang member or President Obama or a mom of somebody. You have no idea who you're going to be. Your job is to create a policy response to this situation that you would want to be the policy response if you had no idea who you were going to be in this story. You don't get to choose your role. You only get to choose the rules of the game. What should the U.S. do to respond to this situation? What rules would you choose? I had them think about that. I asked the question, and I said, I'm going to hold the silence here. I want you to think deeply about this. And I held the silence for a full minute, which seems like an eternity in a public school classroom. <laughs> yes. And I will say that I myself prayed during that minute. <laughs> I, I prayed to listen to the students with openness and love and compassion and integrity and acceptance, you know, to not need to control any outcomes. And I will say that their responses were touching more often than not. A couple of them were really affected by that thought experiment. A couple of them weren't, but even so, most of them were able 
to say, well, I still have the same policy proposal, but I understand better now why the kids coming from Central America feel as they do. I understand better why maybe they feel entitled to a certain kind of treatment here. It makes sense to me that they would. And the fact that there were a couple of students who didn't budge made me think, you know, at least that's evidence of the fact that I'm not forcing anything. So to me, there was no bad outcome to that. A few kids did move, some of them a fair amount. Some of them just had their awareness expanded a little bit, and some of them stayed right where they were, and that was okay. You know, I do things like that to try to bring them to greater empathy because I feel like that really is the number one thing that I can do to heal this world. And it helps bridge the gap. The Conversations from the Heartland, again, which was my starting point for the conception for this conversation between us, you've gotten positive movement or the gap being bridged in some cases. But there is one case that you mentioned when you came out as bisexual that that had some consequences. Explain what happened there. Well, it was very snarly. I did it because I was really concerned about, I had several gay students in my class and we were doing a seminar in which that was relevant. We were actually doing a seminar to help us build a better community in our charter school, and the approach that we took was to explore the differences among us, to explore the different things that people brought to the table and the ways that they felt excluded, the ways that they felt less than whole, less than accepted, less than fully present. And the kids generated a list of things that made them feel that way, and the list included many things, many mental health things, actually. I mean, there were anxiety disorders, there were physical issues, there were various mental health things, personal circumstances, kids who had been sexually abused, and there was sexual orientation. And that was an issue for several of the kids. And at that time, no one was out in the school. Well, actually, that's not quite true. A student had come out before. But at that time, certainly no teachers were out and very few people in the community were, and I was really worried about a couple of students, and I decided after great thought that I was just going to do it, and I didn't make a big deal of it. I deliberately held it to near the end of a class, so there wasn't long. About 10 minutes before the bell rang, we were talking about the issue. Two students had just given a presentation on LGBTQ issues, and I mentioned it, and unfortunately, there were two students who felt deeply uncomfortable about it, And they felt that, at least in one case, that their human rights as Christians had been violated in the classroom by my doing that. I ended up having to face a lawyer, and that was was difficult. I went through many months of not knowing what was going to happen. During that time, I, I wondered if I would stay in my job, not so much because I thought I was likely to lose it, but because I wasn't sure I could take the heat in the kitchen. There were ways in which I was rattled by it, not by the fact that people disagreed with me, but by some of the rules that were put on me. I was put under a complete gag rule. I uh, wasn't allowed to talk about it with anybody And that was very uncomfortable for me. That really went against my sense of the way a workplace should be. So I ended up, eventually had the meeting with the lawyer. And that actually went very well. By the end of the meeting, the lawyer said, 
it's been a privilege being part of this conversation. There need to be a lot more conversations like this. And then she said, are you a hugger? And she gave me a hug. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> was this lawyer representing the school, the opposition, or just... A yeah, the, well, yeah. I mean, representing the student's concern. I think the lawyer was hired by the district to represent the student's concern and to do the investigation into whether I had violated anyone's civil rights. The violation of their civil rights would be that you have identified yourself? I mean, what was the violation supposed to be? I understand that it was my saying something personal that contradicted or challenged a religious belief was a violation of their civil rights in the classroom. So if, for instance, you had said, I believe in evolution, you're violating their rights. Would that be consonant? And I, well, I think I think there are some people who definitely feel that that would be the case. Right. Would this be parallel, though? Is that I, kind of? I role? guess so. I guess so. Yeah. And so, what did the school or the lawyer or whatever conclude? That I had not done that. I guess the conclusion was that I had not done anything that required a disciplinary response, and ultimately the gag rule was removed at my insistence and with some support. That was a long conversation, but ultimately the gag rule was lifted. Now, I'm assuming part of your support in this, I mean, you have friends, a mixed group of friends there. You do have the Friends Worship Group that you're part of. You also have a wonderful husband, Soren. Mm -hmm. So I think you had a fallback position there to catch you if you know, you lost your job, etc. Yeah, but I can't say that I thought about all that. <laughs> you know, this is one of those places where I took a risk. I thought about some things ahead of time. I will confess that what happened it was not an outcome I had anticipated. I sort of anticipated maybe something really dramatic, and being who I am, I didn't really want to back away from something sort of dramatic. I mean, there was a way in which it almost appealed to me, I didn't envision death by a thousand cuts, which was what started to happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> no drama, just slow grinding misery. And, you know, that kind of went on for about five months. That was hard for me. That was very hard for me. But I will say that there were several gifts along the way. And one of them came in the form of a beautiful woman in our worship group. She's, of all people I know, one of the closest to the spirit. And I talked about what happened in meeting for worship a couple days after it happened. And she ended up sending me, this still amazes me, I, I still am just astounded. A few days later, I got a letter in the mail saying, don't even think of sending this back. This is a gift to you. I, I am led by the Spirit to do this. Keep our lives simple by not even trying to refuse it. I want to support you, and this is how I'm going to do it. And it was a check for $1,000. And she did it again. That was such an extraordinary statement of faith from someone who I trust so deeply to be moved by faith and to be moved by the Spirit. This woman is a poet. She's written three volumes of beautiful religious poetry, some of it very classical, some of it free verse, but beautiful inspired poetry. That she felt moved to do that was one of the most supportive things that could possibly have happened. I thought, you know, if she feels that, if she's so sure, then I did the right thing. And the worst thing I could do right now is back down. The worst thing I could do is betray not only my own guide, but hers. So in the dark times, that kind of kept me going. 
Well, that helps me cycle back to your article, which was in Friends Journal, about 10 years ago. Conversations from the heartland, the education of one confusing chick on the front lines of the culture wars. And one of the things that you talk about in there, and really, folks, if you can get a hold of this article, it will enrich your refinement of understanding of who we and who they are. Maybe I actually I think it will help blur the lines so that we can see a we and they are not so different. But one of the things that you talk about is the beauty of people. How did you state it? One of the ways you say it is your point seven in the things that you write out there. A people more gracious than their theology. And you talk about the fact that people of this different conviction, people who are normally called religious right, that they're really not even just nice, they're compassionate, they're sweet, they're... Describe some of the folks that you connect with. And there's one example that you give in the article that I said, I want to be that good. Yeah, well, so I'm I'm thinking in particular of a woman who was very conservative, her husband ferociously conservative, And yet, uh, one of the things that I'll never forget about her is that at one point she chose to kind of walk with a woman who had gotten pregnant in an extramarital affair, and my friend was hoping that she would not get an abortion. Jeannie, my friend, was very, very against abortion and wanted desperately for this acquaintance of hers not to get one. And she did everything she could to make it possible for this woman to keep the child. I mean, she did child care, and she gave rides, and she took her to the doctor, and she brought her casseroles, and, you know, she did everything she could. And ultimately, the woman ended up getting an abortion anyway. Well, Jeannie was heartbroken by that. She was very, very sad and, you know, also believes that this woman will go to hell. So that certainly increased her sense of sadness about it. But what I was struck more by was the distance she would go to walk with that woman, to try to ease her burden. And she did it with no guarantee of the outcome she wanted. And it was far messier and far more of a commitment than many liberal people I know would make to somebody in those sorts of circumstances. You know, I had to ask myself, is my approach to these things a simple permissiveness? I felt like Jeannie's response had more integrity than mine in some ways, that she took the hard route, the route that demanded a lot of her as well as somebody else. She didn't just lay a moral obligation on someone else. She picked up that burden with them. And I feel like that's really an example to me. I want to be that way too. And so, again, the title of that section of your article in Friends Journal was A People More Gracious Than Their Theology. When I hear their words... And when I hear their words, especially written in the paper, they seem ferocious to me. They seem like they lack compassion. They seem like they're all judgment. But when I meet them in person, they're not. But then your next section is called A People Less Gracious Than Their Theology? Question mark. Yeah, that was kind of my sense of, you know, me and maybe my co-religionists, that I came to feel that we kind of took the easy way out. I didn't see the depth of struggle with a lot of us that I saw with some of my homeschooling friends. I'm not saying that I don't see tremendous commitment and struggle. I do. I mean, I I look at the Quakers around me. I look at, you know, other progressives around me, whether they're people of faith or not, and I see lots of tremendous commitment and hard work. But I also see one of the places that we tend to do less of it is in the very personal realm. 
when I look at my own activism, it's very often on a sort of political level, an organization doing something, promoting an idea. How often is it wrestling with a messy relationship with somebody who's going through a hard time? Both kinds of work need to happen. Both kinds of problems exist. But I see that very often I think I've not challenged myself and not challenged my views by looking at how they play out in this messy, bleeding world. It's easy to promote a view in the abstract. What Jeannie did was dive in in the concrete particulars and get her feet wet. And I admire that. And I, and I think a lot of liberals are less inclined to do that. They're more inclined to say, well, you know, who am I to butt into your life? You know, you have the freedom to do what you want to do. And we respect those boundaries. But I think also it's a little bit lazy. And I think it's a little bit fearful. We don't want to be seen as busybodies. We don't want to be seen as judgmental. And I think we can take that too far. There are a number of other things we could talk about. And folks, we have been visiting with Kat Griffith. Kat is a wonderful writer, and there's a few of her articles which were in Friends Journal about 10 years ago. I'm going to talk to them and make sure they can open them up so you can access at least Conversations from the Heartland or the education of, quote, one confusing chick, unquote, on the front lines of the culture wars. She teaches at Lumen Charter High School in Ripon, Wisconsin, generally known as a conservative bastion, if you will. And her time in Central America and El Salvador and Costa Rica are very interesting. Just recently, she had a recent guest of mine, Paula Palmer, and she hosted her in Ripon as well. There's much you would like to sit down and talk to Kat Griffith about, and I feel so fortunate that I was able to have you here today for Spirit in Action, Kat. Well, thank you. It's been great. And folks, there are going to be bonus excerpts from this interview out on northernspiritradio.org. Go there and see some of the delicious things we couldn't fit in the broadcast And I'm grateful to Andrew Jansen for help with today's program, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.